0: Joining us this morning to break down the hot political stories of the week, Global BC's Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry. We're also joined by BC Today's Shannon Waters. Later in the show, we'll have a chat with BC's finance minister, Carol James.
1: For Camloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director, Shane Woodford.
0: Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. It is a bit of an overcast morning here in Kamloops. A lot of people uh, probably waking up a little shaken after last night's wildfire as well. Uh, pleasure to welcome to the show Keith Baldry, Shannon Waters and Richard Zussman. Welcome all.
2: Hey Shane. Let's, good morning, uh, Shane. Good
0: morning. <laughs> uh, let's start off on the fish farms topic. Uh, an interesting announcement by Lana Popham, who we know has been under fire for her handling of that particular industry over recent months. Uh, essentially, fish farms have four years to prove they're not harming wild salmon, get approval from First Nations, that sort of thing, uh, and then hopefully get everything ironed out by 2022. Uh, why don't we go with ladies first. Uh, Shannon, what did you think of this announcement, considering sort of Lana Popham's checkered past with this thing?
3: I was definitely surprised that the government is not taking more action more quickly. I mean, in a lot of ways, they're really just kicking the can down the road to 2022, putting fish farm operators on notice, saying this is what you're gonna have to do in the future. But in the short term and immediately, there's really not much that seems to be changing there. They're sort of passing it off to the federal government and saying, okay, you guys have said you're going to protect wild salmon. You do that. Um, We'll make sure the companies are, are making nice with the First Nations groups who are involved before we issue the provincial tenures, but they're really not sort of turning up. Um, the heat on, say, some of these operators who are, are operating these controversial facilities, and it certainly didn't seem to be a welcome announcement from the Green Party, uh, for the Green Party, rather. MLA Adam Olson uh, basically said that he felt that it was embarrassing that the provincial government was going to keep the status quo for another four years.
0: Yeah, he he definitely wasn't happy about that. Uh, down that point, considering the controversies and and definitely the opposition, and of course federal authority over ocean waters. Keith, is this a a clever way for the for the provincial government to sort of toss a hot potato decision to the feds and First Nations?
4: Well, you know, Shannon's right. They've kicked this can down the road four years. I'm always dubious of a gov- any government that says we're going to do something four years from now that that is beyond their elected mandate. I mean, this does not bind the future governments from any type of action. On the other hand, there is the Broughton Archipelago fish farms that are separate from this process. There's ongoing negotiations there between the provincial government and First Nations. I think the future of those fish farms are very much in doubt. Uh, and they may cease operations or have their, their tenures revoked because they're now being renewed on a month-to-month basis. And I think the, the likelihood of the, at least a few of those operations being um, ceasing operations uh, is more than likely. But uh, this the overall policy is... Um, Bereft of details, and again, is non-binding on future governments. So, really, this is a this is a, a policy that doesn't have any impact for a long time, and if at all. I mean, who knows if the BC Liberals were to get in or some sort of coalition government? If we have a PR system, uh, they're not. Their hands are not tied by this in terms of giving First Nations a veto, and that is really the the most interesting aspect of this. The NDP government has kicked down the road the idea of giving First Nations a veto or consent over a natural resource operation, and that has implications for other uh, other uh, resource sectors as well. So the, the NDP, as much as they are in favor uh, on paper of things like this, are very reluctant to actually implement it during the time that their, their mandate actually exists.
0: And as far as industry goes, uh, Richard, what's the reaction been from some of these operators?
2: Yeah, so in terms of the Broughton operators, one of the things that stood out to me, Shane, in all of this is when Lana Popham was doing a press conference, and she spoke about how she went up to that region, and the freezers were bare for many First Nations because of the reduced wild salmon stocks, and I think that tends you to believe exactly what Keith is saying, that the future of the industry in that region is likely not going to continue much longer. You know, the reason this announcement took place this week is because it was the expiration of these tenures for the Broad and Fish Farms. And what they've actually done with those tenures is they've renewed them on a month-to-month basis while negotiations are still underway with First Nations uh, with those companies to create a strategy for those 20 fish farms there. So, And, and that negotiation is likely going to go into the fall and potentially into early next year. And then at that point, we'll know the future of that industry. In terms of the industry... On the whole, uh, Sean Hall speaks uh, basically for the fish farm industry as a spokesperson. and He was talking about how it's a $1.5 billion industry, that what British Columbians want to consume is far greater than the amount of wild salmon produced uh, in the province. So there needs to be something here. One of the ideas is to move uh, fish farms from the water onto land, and that seems to be something the Green Party is really interested in, in working towards. Uh, It's been tried out in Norway and other places, but there's no real sense about whether the industry is ready to make the investment uh, in terms of moving their entire industry from the water onto the land.
0: And that wasn't the only sort of First Nations related uh, interesting announcement this week. Uh, The provincial government making a little history by investing in housing uh, for Indigenous peoples not just off-reserve, but actually going on reserve as well, traditionally uh, federal government responsibility. Keith, uh, what's going on there?
4: Uh, It's basically an acknowledgement, or at least a viewpoint expressed by the NDP, that the federal government has almost abdicated its responsibilities in terms of uh, providing uh, housing and services to First Nations. And so what's significant about this, it's not simply giving a blank check, at least as far as we can tell right now, a blank check to uh, First Nations, it's actually saying, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to actually build housing on and off reserve, uh, something like 1,750 social housing units. It's a significant investment, $550 million over 10 years, uh, and it is part of the NDP government's Uh, commitment, again, to supporting First Nations in a way that the B.C. Liberals never did. So this is a significant investment, but again, it's stretched over 10 years. And as as I said at the beginning, uh, sort of, uh, I don't hold all governments to be responsible for previous governments' promises. So I'm not sure this is going to be a commitment that lasts 10 years, but it's certainly going to be there for the first few years. And we're going to see some little literal bricks and mortar uh, built on the ground in a number of reserves around B.C. But, again, until we see it actually in action, it's hard to say what the impact's going to be.
0: It's an interesting move, Richard, because uh, John Horgan's not been shy on several issues, saying, well, hey, uh, we need the federal government to step to the table, yet on this one he says, well, no, screw it, I'm doing it myself.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I think... A lot of faith has been lost in the federal government, not just in British Columbia, but across the country in terms of helping with housing on First Nations. But what BC announced here is the first of its kind in Canada. Clearly, housing is a massive issue on reserves. Uh, they are deplorable conditions, not just housing, but other living conditions on many reserves in Canada. So it's obviously something Horton wanted to address, and it's all about the bigger issue of reconciliation. Right? It goes back to... What they announced on the fish farms as well, the government did in terms of giving First Nations a say at the table. Uh, in terms of what can go through their land. Obviously, there are a lot of complications around claims and strength of claims in terms of land, but this is just another step, and it was a big priority of the government. They committed a lot of money to it in the budget. They made promises during the election campaign that they would work towards true reconciliation with First Nations. So I think you can look at these two announcements together, Shane, just like you have, and see it as a sort of another step forward as this government tries to tackle this issue of reconciliation.
0: Now, it's an interesting move, uh, number one, but there is a bit of a, a fly in the ointment, as it were, Shannon, because uh, we still have that, that issue that has been persisting for a long time now where uh, you have housing on, on reserve land for First Nations, but they don't actually have the right to own it. Uh, so while you might improve the housing, you're not exactly enabling First Nations people, but that is a federal problem.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's going to be interesting. I'm really curious to see, especially for the on-reserve, uh, any on-reserve developments that go ahead, how they are approached, both in terms of, of building them and then who owns them, who's operating them. Um, BC Housing is going to be rolling out requests for a proposal, and it sounds like while preference is going to go to First Nations and Indigenous-run um, housing groups, there is going to be the opportunity for both nonprofit providers and for-profit developers to partner with interested First Nations in order to build this housing. So it's it's really unique. Um, and I was actually, you know, I do think the, the provincial government is sort of moving ahead without the feds, but um, Housing Minister Selena Robinson also explicitly said, we're hoping that the federal government is going to partner with us on this. So I think the province is also using this as kind of a prod to the feds and saying, look, you're you're not taking care of your responsibilities here, so we're going to step in, does that mean you're going to step up?
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break here in Inside Politics, and we'll pick up our conversation on the other side with Keith Shannon and Richard here on Radio NL.
1: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and Radio NL.com to you for Camloops Computer center this is inside politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL.
0: Good morning and welcome back. Uh, pleasure to be talking to Keith Baldry, Richard Zussman, and Shannon Waters this morning. Uh, guys, Proportional Representation Campaign, the official one, July 1st, uh, just around the corner. Uh, interestingly enough, the former uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand is rolling through the province. She's currently in Kamloops as we speak. I had a chance to sit down with her last night, so uh, things are starting to heat up on that front. Uh, Keith, uh, an interesting choice to have uh, somebody from New Zealand rolling through at this particular time?
4: Well, I mean uh yeah, she's gonna be uh, speaking I think to a big gathering in Vancouver as well, the Broadbent institute uh we're still in the early days of uh of this you know campaign such as it is. i don't know I'm sure it's going you to know, turn into a campaign on the on the referendum for changing the voting system uh summers are not a good time, not a good time to get the public's attention in any type of uh, big way, so I think this is still gonna be a rather slow-moving debate amongst only a handful of people who are really interested in this topic, but it's going to ramp up, I think, in September as we get closer to the actual mail-in vote uh, later in the fall. So it's, uh, it's going to be a slow-starting debate on a topic that is rather esoteric, I think, to most people. I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people are, uh, sort of agree with John Horgan's comments earlier uh, a couple months ago where he thought that people aren't going to spend a lot of time in their summer barbecues. Or passionately debating voting systems, and I think that's going to be the case until until we get to the fall.
0: All right, uh, Shannon, uh, we're still waiting on campaign rules. I'm sure both sides are wanting to know what's going on here as we get closer and closer to this fall vote. What's going on on that front?
3: Yeah, I mean, we're we're waiting here. We've heard from um, the chief electoral officer. He reviewed the language that was used on the ballot um said they were clear the language was clear and straightforward suggested a couple of clarifications so the next big step is you know what are going to be the rules around the referendum campaign itself um, we've already got both sides getting information out there. We've had some significant ad buys by the no side appearing on major newspapers. Um, so the campaigns, the people who are who are interested in this, as Keith pointed out, are seem to be ready and raring to go. But they don't have any direction yet as to, you know, what they're going to be allowed to do aside from some of the sort of larger broader brush strokes that were laid out um by eb in his cabinet report so we're just kind of in a holding pattern at
0: the moment. <laughs> been in a holding pattern for a long time. Uh, Richard, uh, it's kind of funny. I know Andrew Wilkinson mentioned a little while back that uh, New Zealand was in chaos because of proportional <laughs> representation. Uh, I had a chance uh, to talk to uh, Helen Clark <laughs> last night who, who completely thought that was the funniest thing ever and, and says uh, uh, far from far from it. Uh, she says New Zealand actually stands up as a great representation of why that system works. So as far as the campaign goes, is uh, going to be more fear-mongering or no?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think fear-mongering is the way that the no-side wins this thing. And Shannon mentioned the ad campaign. So what we're seeing uh, in terms of raps on the major dailies in Vancouver were from a guy named Jim Shepard, who many people will remember uh, was a $1 a year advisor to Premier Christy Clark. Uh, He's running this campaign. It's not necessarily against proportional representation, but it is against the referendum saying it's unfair, The referendum should be revised, and it should just be one clear question. The reason why it's significant is because when the official campaign starts on July 1st, and considering we don't know the rules yet, I'm not totally sure it's actually going to start on July 1st. But until then, there are no spending limits. You know, once we hit the official campaign, it will be similar rules to provincial elections. So no union and corporate political donations. It has to be based on individual donations. Plus the official yes and no side will both get half a million uh, dollars in taxpayer money uh, to run their campaign as well. So we can see this huge push in terms of ads because there are no limits. And I think that uh, really manipulates a little bit what we're seeing here. Keith's right, people aren't paying a lot of attention right now, but it is a big advantage for people who are willing to spend either their own or money they raise now because there are no limits at this point.
0: Uh, quick topic change here. The Municipal Auditor General's office confirmed to be under review by Housing Minister Selena Robinson this week. That office had a, uh, I think it's fair to say, a very rocky start uh, its first two years. Uh, Keith, how do you see this playing out? Do you think it's on the chopping block?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean... This is, uh, this is one of Christy Clark's pet projects. I'm not sure it really had much of an impact on anything. Uh, the NDP would like to dismantle a few things from the Clark era, and I would think this one is very much in the, in the crosshairs. And it's, um, but, but it's not to necessarily to say it's absolutely gone. I mean, it can be used as a nice little um, uh, stick for the provincial government to use on municipalities, but it uh, really hasn't produced, I don't think, a lot of relevant Material in the short time of its existence. So, not surprised at all if Robinson at the end
0: of the day uh, kiboshes this thing. Two and a half million dollar budget last I checked. Uh, I don't think that its reviews are uh, turning up a dollar amount savings that even equals that kind of a budget, Richard.
2: You know, it's not one of those things that we've seen wide coverage of, Shane. There's nothing that's been unveiled by this auditor that has said, oh, look, there's massive flaws in the way this is governed. I think the big, one of the major issues around municipality governance was around the rules uh, in terms of fundraising leading to elections. And those have changed. We'll see how it works. Uh, when we get to the election campaign in October and the lead-up to it. So, you know, I think this is one of those things, as Keith mentioned, that Christy Clark promised and and wanted to deliver on and and hasn't had a huge amount of value in terms of uh, the problem he's trying to fix.
0: I did a pointed email from Ruth Gordon after my story this week on that, who insists the (laughs) office is quite useful. Uh, Shannon, what's your perception of it?
3: Um, basically the same. I don't know that I have much to add that Keith or Richard hasn't already said. It's not an office. I mean, I've only been covering, uh, political, or uh, politics specifically for almost a year now, and it's not an office that I'm particularly familiar with. So, um, I think if it's not you know, it's not something that people are hearing about, and it doesn't seem to be doing much. It's not going to be very difficult for the government just to say, "Okay, we don't need this."
0: Uh, Keith, I know you got to run to do a golf tournament. Uh, last word to you, Rich Coleman. Is he gonna is he gonna run in civic politics or not?
4: talked to one of his closest friends yesterday who ran into him in the building. who says he's generally torn about this, wants to talk to his caucus colleagues this week or next week uh, and get their sounding on it. I think he he's a rich as a political animal, uh, so I think he is going to run. But um, Suri's a, a bit of a viper's nest right now it's uh, that three first party which has been in power for a long time i think is in danger of falling apart i think the electorate is turning on them so if coleman runs i think he'd best be advised to run as an independent candidate rather than uh, the leader of that uh, increasingly fractured municipal party
0: yeah and then i think bruce hayne might agree with you as he jumped ship uh, yesterday <laughs> on that one <laughs> richard uh, civic politics always interesting aren't they
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I've been in touch uh, through text messages with Rich. And what he's told me is it's going to be a really tough decision. He's thinking about it. I know there have been reports out there that he's already made the decision. It's not true. Uh, He's seriously contemplating it. And, you know, this is a fascinating race. Surrey is the second biggest municipality uh, in the province. It uh, doesn't have an incumbent. Linda Hefner's not running again. Uh, There's a nomination battle that wraps up today for the Surrey first party. So, Coleman would have to find somewhere else. I don't, I, you know, I don't think that party has any interest in Rich Coleman being the top of it. Nor does he have any interest in leading that party. So, and again, he represents for those listening in Kamloops. He represents Langley, and you know, I know so many people are familiar with Metro Vancouver, but it's it's <laughs> it, 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 it borders on Surrey. He doesn't live in Surrey. He will be attacked hugely for that. Uh, his previous government's record in Surrey is not particularly strong. Uh, a lot of the uh, analysis says that one of the reasons why the Liberals did uh, so the NDP did so well in the last election because they were able to steal those seats in Surrey uh, you know, schooling's an issue there, obviously a provincial issue, but transit, uh, like, there's just a lot of things in Surrey that will hurt Rich Coleman as a B.C. Liberal. But yeah. his name recognition is through the roof, so it's going to be fascinating if he does decide to
0: run. Absolutely. Uh, Keith, I know you got to go. Thanks so much. Yep, take care. And we'll uh, go through a commercial break, get cut up the news, and we'll, we'll continue our conversation with Richard and Shannon on Inside Politics on Radio NL.
1: From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio
0: NL. Good morning and welcome back. Uh, Keith Baldry is headed off and we're continuing our discussion with uh, Richard Sussman and Shannon Waters. Uh, Guys, the speculation tax continues to be an issue that dogs at the heels of this NDP government. Uh, Yesterday, uh, West Kelowna Mayor Doug Finletter uh, basically released a uh, open letter to the Premier saying the assumptions that uh, he based uh, putting the speculation tax in place in in his neck of the woods were wrong. Uh, It puts his city at a disadvantage. Uh, It could fend off economic investment in West Kelowna. Uh, He wants the province to stand down on this thing. Richard?
2: Yeah, one of the fascinating things about the speculation tax, Shane, is that it was a tax measure that was announced in the budget with no legislation attached to it. So the government is still working on finalizing the legislation, what the tax is actually going to look like. We've already heard a whole set of changes uh, which sort of made this tier approach in terms of how much people got taxed. Uh, If you're from outside of Canada and you buy a property uh, in British Columbia in the regions in which the tax applies, you pay a certain amount, and then it's half that. Uh, if you're from outside of B.C. but live in Canada and pay tax in Canada, and then if you live in B.C. and own two properties and pay tax here, then it's half of that. So it's the, the tax has become very convoluted. It's become controversial because there are significant questions about what the intent of it was, and I think that's what the West Kelowna mayor was raising. The other point I want to make is, You know, this is down the road, but Nanaimo was one of the places that also does not believe the speculation tax should apply to it, and they may be having a provincial by-election as soon as early next year if Leonard Krogh ends up winning the mayor's chair, which everybody expects he will, Uh, and then I feel like the referendum will be not just, or sorry, the the by-election will not just be a referendum on the way the government's working, but also bring up the major issues around the speculation tax and the impact it could have on that community. So this tax clearly is not going away. We will see the actual details of it in the fall, but it could be a, a, a decision that will linger for a while for this
0: government. Yeah, in some ways, Shannon, it strikes me as uh, and this is extremely simplified, but it strikes me a little bit like the bridge tolls issue. Is it puts a, a tax burden unfairly on certain things when perhaps they should have just told all the bridges. Maybe the speculation tax should have been province-wide and that would have solved some of these problems, although I I'm sure some people still wouldn't have liked it because I think that the mayor of West Kelowna does have a point. Uh, There are going to be people investment real estate wise who will look at, uh, you know, your Penticton's, your Peachland's, your uh, places like that, perhaps the Kamloops area where the where the tax doesn't apply.
3: Yeah, I think that is entirely possible. And the application, the area that the tax applies to, in some ways, is is kind of arbitrary. They are some of the hotter housing markets in the province. But after a lot of outcry, uh, the government said that they weren't going to apply it to the Gulf Islands anymore. Lots of people own uh, secondary or recreational homes in the Gulf Islands. uh, and didn't want to be paying the speculation tax, felt that, you know, they they live in B.C., they work in B.C., they'd earned these properties, they don't want to be taxed on them, and so that outcry resulted in the province deciding that they were going to redraw the boundaries and exempt the Gulf Islands. So it's possible that if, you know, there are more of these open letters and more people objecting to this tax that they redraw the boundaries again before they introduce the legislation. I think it's another one of those issues where the longer the government sort of leaves things undefined and leaves these loose ends, the more they sort of open themselves up to either having to make changes or being seen as backing down um, on these issues. So, I mean, we'll see. I think we're going to be waiting till the fall for this one as well.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk to Carol James about it in the next segment as well. Uh, marijuana continues to be a fascinating issue. We got that October 17th deadline, Richard, and uh, I think uh, if I get the comments from Mike Farnworth correct, that there's going to be a a big irony on October 17th because legalization's ultimate goal is to get rid of the black market. But it sounds like we're not going to have brick-and-mortar marijuana retailers in nearly as many places uh, as, as they should be for Legalization Day, meaning a lot of people in this province are going to turn to their black market dealer to celebrate.
2: Yeah, and we're being told uh, to expect an announcement today around uh, the way distribution will work. I have no idea what that announcement may entail, but we could get some clarity on the sort of product that will be offered uh, both to the private stores uh, and to the public stores. Uh, We could get a better sense of the timing around these public stores. But, you know, Shane, you're exactly right to hit on the point that Mike Farnworth made. These stores take a while to get established. We don't even have uh, footprints like I was looking at pictures in New Brunswick and they already have actual brick-and-mortar store set up, and the only thing they don't have there are employees and pot. Everything else is ready. B.C. is far behind that. Uh, Getting land is complicated, especially in the urban centres. So I'm going to be curious to see where they put these stores, how quickly they can get the land, uh, how they can get the properties actually built, structured, secured, all of these things. So there's a lot of things that have to happen between now and October. Uh, I don't think it's going to be flip a switch and all of a sudden uh, recreational pot is available on every street corner in the province. It's going to be a drawn-out process. And then the other major issue to deal with are dispensaries. You know, do these dispensaries yeah. end up getting the proper licenses to be the private retailers? Uh, do the dispensaries get blown out? Do the dispensaries try to continue to operate? Uh, where do they get their supply from? There are just so many questions, Shane, that are still lingering as we uh, approach this step line a few months
0: away now yeah it sounds a lot like sh- uh, shannon legalization will be welcome to the new regime it looks just like the old one
3: in some ways i mean i think a lot of people who really were excited about legalization and were thinking it was going to mean more and better access to cannabis are going to be unpleasantly surprised particularly those living in bc where if you live in victoria or vancouver you may have been going to a dispensary and buying what you assume is somewhat legal pot because you can walk in off the street into a brick-and-mortar store and buy cannabis. But when legalization comes in, that's not going to be the case. And those existing dispensaries in Victoria and Vancouver are going to have to start a licensing regime all over again. Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria, has said that here um, there are going to be a lot of fewer dispensaries under legalization than there are currently operating under the city's licensing regime for dispensaries. The other thing is they're not going to be called dispensaries anymore because they're not going to be allowed to call themselves dispensaries. So some of these people who have sunk money into a business model and branding uh, and paying for a business license are going to have to do that all over again just to be able to exist under the new regime. So I, I do think it's going to be a bit of a scramble. I think Richard's right. We're not just going to flip a switch and all of a sudden, you know, we're going to have uh, legal cannabis sort of everywhere you could possibly want to buy it. So um, it's going to be interesting.
0: Uh, we only got about a minute left here, Richard. Uh, real quick to you, German report out uh, next week. What can we expect there? Yeah,
2: Wednesday. Expect a huge report. There are I think 40 recommendations. Uh, some of them the province is already working on, but expect you know tougher. Land- language around cracking down on uh, not just money laundering in casinos, but in the housing market. Uh, you know, David E.D. Has, has pointed as this in the signature report, and it's going to be really interesting to see how in-depth it is.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be interested. Well, I don't really know. We won't really know, but uh, I think there's going to be a lot of things that were in that report a few months ago that uh, aren't in there now. I'm hearing there's a bit of a dogfight from various agencies to get certain pieces of information removed. Shannon?
3: Yeah, I mean, we've we've basically been told that it's taken so long for this report to come out because there are considerations around sort of existing police operations yeah. and protecting identities and stuff like that. So it is going to be interesting to see... You know how much information has maybe been redacted or shuffled around or removed. Um, I'm really curious to see what the government is going to propose going forward. Um, I was reading a poll yesterday uh, by Research Co saying that about three quarters of British Columbians would support a public inquiry um, into money laundering in casinos. Um, So whether that's something that the province is going to decide to proceed with. I seem to remember when the interim report came out that E.B. was dismissive of doing a public inquiry and basically said they take too much time and money and move too slowly um but you know they're gonna have to take some major steps now that they've they've gone into this in-depth examination of the issue
2: and he told me this week shane no yeah. public inquiry he sort of sees the german report as sort of the the best uh, way to deal with this issue rather than a public inquiry so shane has got it exactly right there
0: by the way i hope that's wind richard because if that's you breathing you're going to charge me about a dollar ninety nine a minute for this call yeah. <laughs> win. Yeah. Uh, Richard Shannon, uh, always a delight. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Shane. Appreciate it. Uh, there we go. Richard Zussman and Shannon Waters. We'll take a quick break here at Inside Politics on Radio NL, and on the other side, we'll talk to BC's Finance Minister Carol James.
1: Local news now, Radio NL, six ten a.m. and RadioNL.com hamloops computer center this is inside politics once again radio nl news director
0: shane woodford Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. I had a chance this week to catch up with Finance Minister Carol James as her office made some news this week as they look at uh, putting together and releasing a public database of who owns what as far as real estate is concerned in this province. Let's listen in on that conversation recorded a day or two ago. More changes on the real estate front. Obviously, there was a a laundry list of concerns when you guys came into government on this file. Uh, One of them you're looking to address with this white paper is is more transparency, uh, revealing exactly who owns what real estate state around the province so uh, admirable goal but how do you go from sort of ground zero to determining okay this person's owns owns that this person's owns that because it is very complicated and people have tried to unravel some of these things and just end up frustrated and and, and ended up and dropping it.
5: There's no question. There's no question that this is a a complicated issue to take on, but that shouldn't stop us from ensuring that we have more transparency in the housing market and that we ensure that people are paying their fair share of taxes. So we committed as part of our 30-point plan for housing affordability to end the hidden ownership of real estate, uh, to make sure that people who are using numbered companies uh, or corporations to hide who truly owns the real estate, um, that they will need to be transparent. Uh, We are going to put together a public registry. Uh, We're going to require people to register their names so that it's disclosed just like it is for everybody else who's on the land uh, titles registry. Um, And then we have the opportunity to do audits if necessary. Um, If there are uh, examples of people who are coming forward and we don't believe they're paying their fair share of taxes, then there's the opportunity to ensure that, uh, that that's addressed and that we crack down on that. So a really critical piece. I'm really pleased that BC is taking leadership here. Uh, the federal government has expressed some interest in it, and we've got a, a federal-provincial-territorial uh, meeting next week, and I'm hoping that we can uh, have some discussions about the work we're doing and encourage other provinces and the federal government to, to look at this, because other jurisdictions have moved, and it's about time that we got caught up.
0: Uh, any idea, Carol, in a timeline, like once you hit go on this thing, uh, do you think it'll take, what, six months, a year, or more, to kind of be able to track down all that information and then put it online and begin this database?
5: Well, we certainly hope by next spring. Um, we put out a discussion paper right now. People can take a look and, and see the discussion paper that's out there till August, uh, to the middle of August. It's an opportunity for them to give their feedback. Um, but then we will move ahead and draft the legislation uh, and make sure that, as I said, that that's introduced by the spring. I think it's it's critical that people build confidence once again. In the real estate market in, in British Columbia, and we've all heard the stories uh, about money laundering and, and the concerns about people hiring. Uh, what the, their real wor- wealth is worth, um, this really is an opportunity to make sure that, as I said, uh, the vast majority of people who are paying their fair share of taxes, that everyone is treated in the same way.
0: Uh, if I read the, the document correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like some or all of First Nations land is excluded. If so, how come?
5: Uh, they're just federal laws. Uh, on federal land, we're talking about provincial laws on provincial land, and so that's why we're, in, we're beginning in this step. Uh, if there are opportunities to expand it or other concerns that are raised, uh, I expect that'll be part of the, the good discussion that'll happen with the discussion paper out there.
0: Do you anticipate, Carol, when you start getting this information that, that certain things could pop out? I mean, the idea is to uh, perhaps root out some tax evasion and, and perhaps some money laundering and things like that. Do you think some of that would come out initially or no?
5: Uh, I do I expect that there there could be those issues uh, raised. I certainly, as I said, I expect that once we start uh, dealing with the transparency that that there will be issues raised, and and that's part of what we want to get to the bottom of. Uh, As I said, I think, you know, the vast majority of people in British Columbia pay their fair share of taxes, and they expect everybody to follow the same rules. Um, And so ensuring transparency that people can't hide behind numbered companies uh, is part of that transparency. And just because it's tough and just because it's complex doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it on and, uh, and that's what we're doing.
0: Uh, I know Andrew Weaver has pushed for this. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson out with a response uh, to, to the registry about half an hour ago uh, saying that uh, you need to close the Bear Trust loophole. Uh, something he says is as simple as applying the property transfer tax to the transfer of beneficial ownership. Uh, your response to that?
5: Well, if you don't know who people are, it's pretty tough to go after them. <laughs> so the first step is making sure you get the registry in place. Let's make sure we know who the people are, and then we've got the opportunity to be able to look at the next steps, which are ensuring that people are, are paying what they need to but right now there isn't a registry the previous government didn't move on it uh, other jurisdictions haven't moved on it we are
0: do you find any irony in the liberals now hailing the move and saying it's been uh, too long in the making
5: well, it's really quite extraordinary that a, a government who ignored the housing crisis for the entire time they were in, uh, and in fact their, their leader who didn't talk about the housing crisis even while he was running for leader, now all of a sudden says that he's interested in it. But, you know, I'm glad to have people come to the table and recognize the real crisis we have in British Columbia, the difficulty that people have in being able to find affordable homes or even dream about being able to find an affordable place to rent. We have to address this as an economic issue in British Columbia when we have a hot labour market, when we need to recruit people and retain people here as workers in British Columbia, if we can't provide affordable housing in our communities, we aren't going to have a strong economy. So I'm glad now, uh, even if it's late in the game, I'm glad to see people coming to the table and acknowledging that there's a problem and that we have to address it.
0: Just to clarify in the act itself, I mean, there is some teeth in this thing in the, in the form of uh, criminal and administrative penalties, but it sounds like if uh, if person A buys a property and they don't cough up the particulars that you want them to cough up, it sounds to me, and again, you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the sale itself could be held up. Is that correct?
5: Well, I think we're looking at all the tools that are available. It's part of the reason we put it out as a discussion paper we want a deterrent um we want to ensure that people register as they will be required to um and uh and we'll use all the tools we need to to make sure that happens
0: anything else coming down the pipe on on the housing front to carol or no
5: well, I think that this is a big piece that uh, we wanted to get out before the summer uh, so that people have an opportunity to be able to uh, to address their concerns and, and raise their issues and their ideas. Uh, and then in the fall, as you know, we'll be bringing forward the, the speculation tax uh, and the legislation on that issue as well. So I'm really proud of the work we've been doing around housing. Our housing minister has been out uh, talking about modular housing and building affordable housing. This week she was out with our premier talking about First Nations housing and and over $500 million we've invested in that area. So we really have been working hard to make sure it's a comprehensive plan because one tool isn't going to fix the housing crisis in British Columbia. It will take all of our efforts. It will take a number of tools. We'll need to monitor them as they go along. And, uh, and as I said earlier, just because it's complicated hasn't stopped us from acting, and I'm really proud of that.
0: Uh, well, I got you on the phone. Uh, you've come out of the gate and knocked off a couple big union deals. Uh, of course, there's some challenges on that front. A lot more work to be done. I don't know if you can confirm or not, but uh, the rumor is some of these deals—BCGU, perhaps the uh, the QPD was, uh, QP deal with school sport workers—had uh, about a two percent wage hike. Is, is that sound about right, Carol, or no? I'm
5: I'm going to give the opportunity for for the unions to be able to talk to their members about the negotiations. Uh, but I am really pleased that we've seen four tentative agreements. Uh, framework reached um, and we worked hard and I worked hard uh, along with our cabinet and along with the premier over the fall to make sure people knew we were going into this bargaining from a positive perspective we wanted to look at how we uh, supported our workers in British Columbia and public services but also how we made sure that um, that we did it in a way that was affordable uh, and that improved services for people in British Columbia and I, I believe we've done that in these agreements so I think within the next few weeks once labor has had a chance to talk to, uh, to they are members that will certainly be talking about the uh, the settlements.
0: All right, and uh, you, I'm sure, are keeping a close eye on the bottom line here, considering the challenges on the union front going into going into next year. Are you confident you can get those deals done without tipping the fiscal ship?
5: Yeah, we've been very clear about our mandate. Uh, We made sure, as you know, to to build into the budget uh, dollars and contingencies to address uh, not only promises and commitments that we still have to to look at, uh, but also to look at at bargaining. So we were prudent in our budgeting. We were fiscally responsible, and we've been fiscally responsible at the bargaining table as well. That's important to me and important to the Premier.
0: Uh, Former Premier Mike Harcourt suggesting a rethink on the speculation tax. Your thoughts?
5: Uh, We're moving ahead with it. You know, I understand that there are people who, you know, have different approaches to addressing affordable housing. As I've learned, everybody has a solution uh, around looking at affordable housing. We put a suite of measures together, 30 points in our plan, uh, and we're moving ahead uh, with that plan. And as I said, I, I certainly believe it's going to have an impact.
0: Uh, Last question, the Wildlife Park, I know it's an issue you're very aware of. Uh, We talked to them and it sounds like some progress has been made. Uh, Can you confirm that uh, carbon tax monies and it sounds like funding from other ministries may go help to alleviate some of their cost concerns or no?
5: Uh, We're getting very close to being able to get information out about not-for-profits and and charities and some of the challenges that they're facing, Uh, so I expect in the next few weeks uh, we'll certainly have details out to all those organizations. Uh, We understand how important the not-for-profit sector is to our province uh, and charities are to our province and the the incredible uh, work that they do in our communities to to both provide quality of life but to, to provide services as well, and so we're working very hard to make sure that we're addressing the concerns they've raised including the wildlife park.
0: Can you confirm carbon tax monies are involved there or no?
5: Uh, I can't confirm any details, uh, but that'll be out in the next few
0: weeks. (laughs) Perfect stuff. Carol, always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you so much, Shane. Talk to
0: you soon. That was Finance Minister Carol James. We'll take a break and on the other side a conversation about proportional representation with the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark.
1: Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Loops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics.
0: Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. I had a chance to sit down yesterday with the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark, at a local Kamloops establishment to discuss proportional representation and women in politics. Let's take a listen. Uh, Helen, first off, uh, welcome to Kamloops. Thank you. Um, You're here to, as I understand it, address uh, the proportional representation thing, uh, in part, uh, of course, uh, women's equality in politics, something New Zealand appears to have done a little better than Canada has in that regard. And we'll, we'll dive into that in a minute. But... Uh, first off, New Zealand tackled this issue of going from first-past-the-post to proportional representation, something that we're facing uh, in a referendum this fall. Uh, first off, from your perspective, uh, was that transition a difficult one? Was it, um, was, it a, was it a tough way to move from one to the other? Was it fairly easy?
6: When New Zealand moved, there was no precedent for it. And that's what makes British Columbia referendum interesting now, because you have a precedent of New Zealand as an Anglo-democracy with a first-past-the-post system which made the change. So the political parties had to learn how to operate quite uh, differently, they had to learn about coalitions, they had to learn about talking to each other instead of shouting at each other. In some ways, this coalition government here in, in BC with NDP and Greens working together foreshadows that, because that's the sort of arrangement you would have to have under MMP, for example.
0: Um, we have three systems on the ballot. I know that uh, in New Zealand you had the proportional representation. It went to a second referendum. People in New Zealand said, yeah, we're, we're kind of liking this, and it was reaffirmed. Um, In the election cycle since you've adopted it, has it been something that people have managed to learn fairly quickly or or no?
6: So politicians had to learn a lot because they'd been used to campaigning in the two major parties for outright majorities. And generally an MMP system or proportional system isn't going to give one party an absolute majority. Mm. That's why voters tend to quite like it once they see it working because they see that you don't just have one party with a majority able to be, if you like, an elective dictatorship in between elections. They have to go out and find find votes. They have to have right. relationships with other parties. They have to talk to each other. So in New Zealand it's made the the parliamentary committees a, a lot more meaningful uh, as, a, as a process and there has been immensely more inter-party dialogue. I was in Parliament for 15 years under the old system. We never spoke to each other across parties. When I became uh, Leader of the Opposition and then Prime Minister, we had to, but it became part of the culture and the way you work that you consulted. You didn't surprise the parties that you were, you were closest to. Uh, you worked in a more collaborative way, and that has to be a good thing.
0: Uh, you mentioned in there, and it caught my ear, that when it comes to electing women into office, and I, if I caught your quote correctly, it was, the first past the post system is the most difficult system in order to achieve that. Did, did, did proportional representation sort of help on that front, because New Zealand has, has done something a lot of other countries have struggled with, and including uh, currently having a female prime minister?
6: There was a dramatic increase in women's representation with the first MNP election. Uh, we went from 20% under the old uh, system to 30% straight off, 50% increase. We're now at uh, 387 close to 40%. You can start to see gender parity is within grasp. So it is very good for women uh, because political parties are having to put up lists. So you can't put up a list that doesn't have women prominent on it. Otherwise, the women voters is going to say, well, why would I vote for them? They, they don't look like me. Now, similarly in New Zealand, it has had a dramatic effect on minority representation, uh, on indigenous people's representation, uh, on Pacific migrant populations' representation, uh, Asian representation, uh, LGBTI constituency. So we have a parliament that looks so much more like New Zealand. Uh, When I uh, entered parliament in 1981, We were eight women members out of 92. That was under uh, 10%. Uh, The Maori MPs uh, were in the four Maori seats, plus I think one or two from the National Party definitely not representing their proportion in the population so we have a much more diverse Parliament as a result of this electoral system and I think that's good for democracy. Okay. Uh,
0: Critics of proportional representation here are saying listen uh, under first-past-the-post you know who your MLA is you are represented uh, with a proportional system with a a closed list or an open list Uh, your ability to vote somebody in is compromised. Your, Your take on that argument?
6: So MMP gives voters the best of both worlds because they keep a constituency Member of Parliament. Of course, the constituency will be bigger because there are fewer constituency seats uh, of the total, Uh, but you will have a constituency Member of Parliament. But you will also find that uh, you will see party representatives in places where you never saw them before. So to give the New Zealand example... New Zealand Labour Party does find it hard to elect members of Parliament in in rural areas, but with proportional representation we're able to have people from the regions representing the Labour voters there. Similarly, Conservatives found huge parts of our cities just never electing them, so they now have their list members of Parliament coming out of Areas which they would never have had an MP in. So it does mix things up a lot more, and I think that's good.
0: Uh, Andrew Wilkinson is the leader of the BC Liberal Party here, uh, opposed to proportional representation. About uh, three weeks ago, uh, cited New Zealand as a case in point why we shouldn't adopt. Uh, his quote was, and "I'll paraphrase him, but he did use the word chaos." But that New Zealand was in chaos because of proportional representation. Um, <laughs> you're obviously a former prime minister uh, and longtime resident of New Zealand. Uh, is your country in chaos? Uh,
6: no, we're we're not in chaos and. Ever since politicians worked out how MMP actually worked, we've had years and years and years of stable government. As I say, the transition period, uh, and that was a conservative government with, a, with a, a second party, took out a while to work how it would work. When I became Prime Minister, we made a number of changes which helped it to work. Much looser collective responsibility within the Cabinet across parties. A lot more consultation. Uh, When I left office, the Conservative government that followed me worked very much the same way. So we've got close to 20 years of really tremendous stability in government.
0: Um, I'm not sure how your referendum process went when you decided to move to proportional Representation. Uh, Here there has been what I would characterize as as fear-mongering and and exaggeration and distortion. Um, Were you able to have an adult debate in that transition, in that vote? Uh, And if so, what would your advice be to people as we engage in this referendum process here?
6: There was a tough debate in New Zealand, and we didn't have examples of any other Anglo-democracy which had done this. So, of course, it was easy to point to Italy and it's, uh, what now, close to 70 governments since the war. Uh, what we knew less about were the stable governments of Northern Europe, uh, from uh, the Netherlands to Germany to the, the Nordic Sweden, countries. So uh, when MMP came in, we actually started to look more like them. We've never looked like Italy. We haven't had that degree of proliferation of, 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 of parties. So I think when, when BC votes... Clearly the most relevant example is New Zealand because it came out of a similar political tradition of the the simple majority single member constituency and it's made this transition successfully.
0: Uh, uh, I'm not sure how aware you are of the three options we're facing. MMP is one... Uh, The other two, uh, to my knowledge, have not been tested in a democracy anywhere, including the third option, which has never been heard of before. Uh, Your assessment of the three options on the ballot, is is MMP the clear winner in your mind? Is that what we should go with? Uh, Are the other two viable? What do you think of those?
6: Well, in New Zealand, we had four options that people could choose on before we went to the final vote. and MMP uh, of, of the four came out with 70% support. Now, why was that? I think it was because it was based on the German model and people knew that Germany had had stable government. So they said, well, that it's good enough for them, maybe it's good enough for us. Uh, I'm not so familiar with the particular design of the other two, that seems to be proportional representation with BC characteristics, if we can put it that way. So people want to have a close look at that. But if they want to see something that's working somewhere else, then MMP is clearly that example.
0: Okay. Uh, Last question, and to go back to uh, the women in politics question. uh, Something that we're struggling with here, nationally I believe, uh, women are 26% representation uh, your current Prime Minister, uh, I believe the second world leader, to uh, have a baby on the job, uh, taking Matt leave to care for her daughter, uh, is not married to her partner, uh, all sorts of glass ceilings there. Uh, that might cause something of a frenzy over here. Uh, what is it about New Zealand or what is it, what's going on over there that that is is apparently not that big a deal. How how have you crossed the threshold
6: there? So so New Zealand has always seen itself as a a socially progressive country, and it was the first country in the world where women fought for and gained the right to vote, 1893, 125 years ago. Women have held the position of Prime Minister three times, Governor-General three times, the Speaker of Parliament, Cabinet Secretaries, Head of the biggest private sector company, the Chief Justice, you name it, Kiwi women have done So that is the context. Now, when I went into Parliament, which was in 1981, could I have been a, a, a Prime Minister giving birth and not be married, no. It would have been unthinkable. But what I love about New Zealand is it does move with the times. No one is turning a hair at this. In fact, the first baby is a sensation. Uh, There's no other news in New Zealand at the moment except the media stakeouts outside the the hospital where Jacinda Ardern has given birth. And people are overwhelmingly positive. Whether or not they support her politically, they say good on her. And they say what an incredible role model to young women and girls. And I've also made the point that her partner is a role model because Jacinda goes back to work in six weeks and her partner is going to be caring for the baby. And he has a very good career himself. But he's saying this is what's important to us as a couple right now, that I look after the baby. So both of them are sending strong... Gender equality messages, and I think that's why it has got international news attention and uh, is is seen as quite inspirational. Fantastic! Uh, Anything else for the people of British Columbia to know? Uh, Well, what an incredible province you have! I've been uh, driving down, (laughs) came across the Alberta uh, border, and come down to Kamloops today. Uh, Rockies are absolutely extraordinary and I'm looking forward to being back in Vancouver and and Victoria, which I have visited before, uh, but always good to be back.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. That was former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark. Let's switch topics to the always interesting marijuana file and hear about local government's concerns from the UBCM perspective, next on Inside Politics.
1: Local News Now, Radio NL, 610am and RadioNL.com computer center this is inside politics once again radio nl news director shane woodford
0: marijuana will soon be legal earlier this week vancouver counselor Kerry jang joined us in the morning show here on nl in his role with ubcm to discuss local government's cannabis concerns let's listen in
7: well we now know the date october the 17th marijuana becomes legal across the country will we be ready what work needs to be done Joining us is Vancouver Councillor and UBCM representative it is Kerry Jang. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? We're great. Uh, you must when, when you hear the gas prices up here you must go I wish.
8: No kidding. It was a buck 54 I think last night when I was driving home.
7: Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Uh so uh were you surprised that uh, the date was bumped to mid-October?
8: <laughs> no, not actually, you know, given how marijuana is Polarized views around the country you know I figured if we got there next year it would be great so October 17th today and looking forward to it
0: Carrie it's uh, Shane Woodford here how are you
8: I'm good,
0: Shane. Just so you know, I've got my hand over the sensor button for this whole interview. <laughs> oh, oh, oh well, that's no fun, huh? <laughs> uh, Hey, so uh, give me an idea, uh, obviously the municipalities have a lot of heavy lifting to do here, uh, there's a lot on the to-do list. Uh, in your eyes, and from a UBCM and, and your uh, councillor hat, uh, what, what's on that, ch- what's on that t- to-do list between now and October 17th? Any concerns?
8: Well, no, not too much. I think, first and foremost, what the municipalities have to do, and they've been doing it, is getting the zoning right, saying where they want pot shops, where they don't want pot shops, things like that, things that we normally do, you know, when we have land use decisions. Thankfully, you know, working with the province, they've been fantastic on this file, actually, the new government. Wow. Um, you know, they—they're going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to things like enforcement, like licensing and whatnot. So our burden is actually lifted. You know, down in Vancouver, we were doing it all alone. Uh, the province, you know, according to the new legislation, will be taking up most of the heavy heavy lifting. So I'm pretty pleased about that.
0: So this is obviously dependent on uh, not just municipalities, as you talked about there. The province has a responsibility We're awaiting regulations on the federal level. Is there any missing pieces that the municipalities are waiting on, Carrie, that, that is going to help form this thing or no?
8: Yeah, a little bit. So there's, of course, this uh, where people can use it, like outside, you know, public use. Uh, those issues, we're looking at things like can we grow... Uh, can people grow marijuana on agricultural land, reserve land? That's a big issue. You know, we don't want uh, you know this feeling that you know food, you know, land should be kept for food in the ALR. And you know, can we use say less productive land to build the greenhouses for uh, commercial production? Uh, the other issue is taxation. Once mm-hmm. the tax money starts to roll in, who gets what?
0: Yeah, and those are negotiations underway right now. Any update on that? Uh, as far as what the province and the municipalities are sort of talking about as a, as a cost share.
8: Well, uh, that's what we're actually actively working on now, and uh, if you look at what happened in Ontario, Ontario is, uh, is giving forty percent of the share of their share from the federal government to municipalities to offset their costs. However. One of the issues around that, of course, is that uh, in Ontario, the model is a little bit different, and they won't be doing as much heavy lifting, the province, uh, than the city. So they'll be relying more on local police, for example, whereas in British Columbia, we're going to have an enforcement unit uh, run by the province.
0: So Kerry, and Howie, will get you in here in a sec, but uh, just on that, that cost share split, again, for people who don't know, UBCM is negotiating with the province on the marijuana tax revenues to determine how much or what percentage flows down to local governments. Uh, once we legalize in October 17th, carry that tax money is going to begin to be generated. Uh, How how long can you guys go before determining a formula and deciding how much that money flows? Four or five months? Do you need an agreement right away? Where do you stand on that?
8: Well, you know, we'd like to have an agreement sooner rather than later. But, you know, day one of legalization and probably the first few months of legalization won't look very much different than what's happening now. I mean, there'll be the whole licensing process to go through and then getting tax numbers, GST numbers, provincial sales tax numbers, so it'll be a little while. Uh, You know, we're looking at maybe a two-year window, looking at, uh, you know, how much, you know, two years before we well, not to have an agreement, but to actually start looking and getting a sense of what kind of money's coming in. We have no idea what the projections of tax money is going to be. I mean, there's some rough estimates out there based in Washington. Uh, For example, in in Colorado and Washington, you know, how much money they brought in was a lot more. than what they expected but in places like california it's much less than they expected so we have to see where it goes to make sure first and foremost that the municipalities costs are covered so if we when when we do the rezonings, if we have to hire more police for example to help out the enforcement unit if we have to hire more staff to do all the licensing stuff uh you know that's a cost to us that we said very clearly at the ubcm we will not bear that will have to come from the um, tax money for marijuana
7: when uh, when you looked at uh, the models elsewhere, did you find that uh, they were getting more tax dollars at uh, all levels, at uh, municipal as well as the uh, the uh, the federal government?
8: Well, you know, it, it does vary across province, and it's going by you know how many. Per, per capita usage for example so we don't know what those numbers are I mean when you look at some of the uh, data that you know, some of the projections say between Ontario and BC Ontario's got a huge population and their estimates of, of how much mo- the money they bring in from the Feds is 100 million uh, and we're looking at our province says well it's about maybe 125 million we have a small population do we actually smoke four times more pot than Ontarians Probably do. That's why we're so happy. <laughs> 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 we're not Toronto, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that's what I. That's what I always told people, Kerry. I mean, yeah, it rains a lot in Vancouver, but that's what keeps the pot smoke down. <laughs>
8: oh, you bet. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Kerry, Vancouver moved on this uh, very aggressively uh, a couple years back, but uh, for years now there has been this gray area. You have dispensaries popping up, pardon the pun, like weeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you guys have, have, have aggressively moved on that. Other municipalities have moved begun to. Move on it now including here in Kamloops Uh, any concerns a from different municipalities with your UBCM hat on or any advice from a Vancouver perspective as we go to legalization and different local governments say okay now we've got to get a handle on these different operations maybe this one isn't uh, being a friendly neighbor maybe this one is in the wrong spot how do you make that transition from illegal to legal
8: well certainly as I said before what like Kamloops for example they're starting to get their zoning in place so you know you can actually say hey look this is not the appropriate place for pot shop and if the person applies to go there you can say no the zoning says you can't be there and we'll tell the province and that's the interesting thing about this. It's being handled very much like liquor. So when somebody wants to open up a new bar or get a liquor license, you know, they make an application to the province. The province then says to the municipality, like Vancouver or Kamloops, do you want this guy, yes or no? Does he, is he compliant with all your bylaws? Is he a good operator? Does he have a criminal record? They're going to be doing some of those checks and so on. And if one of us say this person's no good, that person won't get a license. And that's very interesting, and it really comes down to enforcement as well. So if somebody is, like in Vancouver, currently non-compliant and deliberately flouting our laws to piss us off, oops, excuse my French, Uh, um, you know, we'll tell the province (laughs) if they make an application, this person's no good, and they'll never get a license. Now that will hurt them, because that's what they really want at the end of the day, is to generate money through their pot shop. And if one of us, in particular the municipalities, have really a veto power, they can say this person's no good, that person won't get a license.
7: Uh, yesterday, uh, we heard that uh, some people are projecting it'll be a bit of a mess uh, sorting it all out uh, uh, moving forward. Uh, as far as you know, uh, those issues. What uh, what do you foresee? Do you think it's going to be a little more streamlined?
8: Well, I think we're going to be a lot more streamlined than a lot of other provinces. Uh, you know, we do have a well-established infrastructure. We do have a lot of people who are very good operators, good retailers uh... you know even the growers are now applying like in droves to become a licensed producer so i think you know the first year is going to be all over the place uh... one of the issues we're looking at is transition you know what do we do in the meantime between legalization and full compliance you know how much slack do we give you know some people are saying all pot shops could close until the legal supply comes on board other people are saying mm, well you know they're gonna put a lot of people out of jobs for a year so, you know, what do we do? You know, test the product first, make sure it's safe, and whatever they have is sold until the legal stuff comes or whatever. Uh, there's a lot of that slippage to figure out. But, you know, it's an evolving it's evolving sector now, and it's no different than any other new sector, uh, you know, that we have to figure it out as we go along. And I think... We we have to do, and this, whether it's a municipality, whether it's the province or the feds, okay, no ideology can be here. We have to adopt the public health principles, which everybody has done so far, and just work on that. What are we trying to achieve? We don't want it in the hands of kids. We want safe usage. We don't want people smoking and driving, you know. We want to take it out of the hands of, um, you know, organized crime, you know, but it's all government-controlled, like alcohol, you know we can actually have this substance in our communities without it causing too much problem.
0: Uh, just a final question, Carrie, and back on the enforcement, because I think from a municipal level, that's, uh, that's a huge issue. There's obviously going to be some things that fall into uh, policing realm, uh, Vancouver Police in your neck of the woods, RCMP up here, other things like secondhand smoke, uh, people smoking out of designated areas, uh, a list of issues will fall into, I assume, sort of the municipal bylaw realm. So policing costs, we know, is an issue. Do you anticipate there's going to be an extra burden on the municipal level, on the bylaw officer, I- in order to kind of curb some? of these behaviors right out of the gate?
8: Oh, I think so, absolutely, and this is why we're working on the tax share now. We need to be able to pay for these folks to do their job and to make sure it's used safely. Alberta did something very interesting. They actually put together a fund of about $300 million. For their municipalities as a startup fund to get them ready and certainly those are one of the things we might be looking at as well there's a number of ways that we can uh, uh, look at tax share and making sure there's actual money up front not promised money because we don't know what the revenues are going to be but actual money's up front in order for us to get ready and that's what we're working on now
0: kerry always a pleasure thank you sir
8: my pleasure anytime
0: there we All go right. vancouver councillor kerry jang also uh the union of bc municipalities representatives on the marijuana file Next on Inside Politics, we continue the pot talk with Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth.
1: Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. For Camloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director
0: Shane Woodford. Circle the calendars, October 17th, pot will be legal right across this country. It's a very interesting topic and a pleasure to dive into it with BC's Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, who joins me on the phone now. Okay, Mike, uh, obviously October 17th, we know a legalization date. We've been working towards it for quite some time. I know you've been addressing this a lot this week, and uh, one of the big themes has been it's going to take some time to really get up and ramp up to a sort of a full legalization regime. So uh, what are you anticipating October 17th as far? far as brick and mortar stores uh, in communities for people to access marijuana? Will there be some in every community? Will it be a bit patchwork? How do you anticipate October 17th?
9: I think you'll start to see uh, a few stores will start to open and then um, you know as time goes on after that month by month you'll see more stores opening in different parts of uh, in different parts of the province. Um, there's a number of key issues. One is, is you know getting everybody uh, the other is, is local government has uh, has to uh, to approve um, you know um, applications in their community, and the background work has to be done, background checks by the province, and then and only then will a license be issued. So it's going to be wrapping up uh, over time, and you'll see more stores as uh, as each month goes by.
0: One of the big issues has been enforcement. A lot of communities pointing to their local police force, saying it's going to put a burden on them. Uh, also, on the bylaw side, and I know that there's a, a, a sort of a unit within your ministry who's going to be responsible for enforcement as well. How do you anticipate the enforcement regime as of day one? Well, there'll be about two.
9: Uh, th- there's going to be two key elements in terms of enforcement. One. Um, There'll be enforcement in much the same way right now that liquor is enforced. So with liquor inspection, you'll have, uh, in essence, cannabis inspection that will be going around and inspecting legal retail outlets that are licensed to sell cannabis. And so that is something that the province will be doing. That will not fall to local government to do that. Uh, And then the second uh, and other uh, key approach is through an enforcement unit which will be operating uh, through my Ministry of Public Safety whose job it is will be to enforce um, the illegal sales of cannabis, and to uh, be able to to confiscate illegal product uh, from illegal operations, uh, and they will will uh, will get shut down.
0: Uh, and how is that unit uh, sort of? Uh, if it, I'm assuming it's not 100% right now, you're probably going to do some hiring and some formation. So, uh, are you on track to have that unit up and running by the 17th, or no?
9: Yeah, no. The work is is ongoing right uh, to do just that, to uh, to put it in place, to make sure to get it uh, up and running by the time uh, October the 17th comes uh, comes around. Uh, and as I said, this is one of those things that's gonna, you know, nothing is gonna, it's not gonna happen all overnight. But uh, once October 17th, you're going to see uh, uh, things uh, really start to ramp up.
0: Yeah. The other one, and you've talked about this before, is on the drug impaired driver side. Uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had a careful look at c forty six yet, but uh, I think we're still awaiting a device, et cetera. Uh, do you still have concerns in that front? And if so, what are they right now?
10: Yeah,
9: we still have concerns. We still have a lot of questions on in terms of the drug impaired driving and exactly the kind of technology and uh, the equipment that uh, will required under Bill C-46. Having said that, drug impaired driving is against the law today and it will continue to be against uh, the law. And uh, the, the the methods for determination that the police currently have will still be there uh, come October the 17th. And in the meantime, what we want to get is answers from Ottawa uh, around the, uh, the technology.
0: Okay, so how will police deal with drug-impaired drivers uh, on the front end, Mike, until some of this stuff is sorted out, assuming we don't have a device by the 17th and um, some of these pieces fall in later on? How is it dealt with for the first you know, weeks, months?
9: Well, one of the, the key issues we have right now is the standard uh, uh, field uh, um, test um, that is one method, uh, and then you can also do the, uh, the, the blood uh, test at the station. Uh, It is somewhat uh, uh, cumbersome and bureaucratic. That's why it's critical uh, that we get uh, the answers from the federal government in terms of the technology, the equipment, uh, as quickly as possible.
0: What other pieces are missing uh, from the federal government that you're looking sort of to fill like? What other pieces of the puzzle are you waiting to drop into place, Mike?
9: Well, right now, what we're focusing on is now that Bill C-45 is has been passed and finalized, we know exactly what we're dealing with, and so we're wanting to make sure that our regulations align with the federal legislation uh, and that the, the, the regulations that the feds put out, we, have, we thoroughly understand how they're going to work in terms of their areas of jurisdiction and provincial areas of jurisdiction, and that's what's taking place right now. And uh, so it's going to be pretty busy this summer.
0: Uh, what is your, and I don't know if you, you can have a take on this, but uh, an issue that's been raised is uh, land for, for some of the marijuana grow operations on the supply side. Uh, will there any thought to using ALR land? And if so, there's already debate about, you know, valuable farmland versus pot. Uh, any idea how sort of the province sort of stands or shakes out on that issue?
9: Uh, that's a very, uh, very good question. Uh, we are looking at that issue. A number of municipalities, particularly in the Lower Mainland, I know Delta, for example, is one. Richmond is another. Have said that they don't want. They want to be able to say no to uh, cannabis production um, on uh, on 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 their farmland in the ALR, Particularly if it involves, you know, paving over farmland to put massive uh, uh, greenhouses on. Um, as opposed to, let's say, cannabis uh, grown in the ground. Uh, And so that is an issue that uh, we are looking at. We have not made a final decision on that. And at the same time, uh, what we want to see and what we're encouraging the federal government is to to recognize that cannabis production has been taking place in many parts of this province already. And so why not encourage and license producers who are going to be legal producers uh, in many of these regions uh, of the province, such as the Kootenays, such as parts of the interior, such as uh, on, on the island, uh, and so have you know, now legal uh, long-term viable economic opportunity in these parts of the province instead of trying to you know, cram everything, for example, into the lower mainland.
0: Uh, One of the things that's been raised to me locally is, uh, you know, if a government is dealing with a business license uh, for any other business, they trickle in throughout the year, they kind of come in at sort of a pace. In this one, uh, there's going to be a lot of front-end loading to deal with it uh, and a lot of complex components, your criminal record check, for example, uh, things like that. Is there going to be a real backlog on the front-end, Mike, to get these things up and running?
9: Um, We're aware that there's going to be a lot of interest so right now we're doing everything we can to make sure that we've got a seamless process uh, and uh, so, for example, the criminal record checks will be being done uh, by the province, and we're uh, aware of the uh, the, uh, the issues that uh, are uh, around that. And the reality is, is, this is a new industry in the sense of it being legal, and there's going to be you know a lot of interest in it. And uh, uh, I expect you know that it is going to be um, a challenge uh, dealing with everything, but uh, we're working as hard as we can to make sure we can meet that challenge.
0: All right. Uh, Any other problems that you're anticipating that sort of haven't been on the radar? I mean, we talk about the obvious ones drug impaired driving, the setting up of the processes. Is is there any other issues that are sort of sneaking around out there that are occupying your mind right now?
9: I'm sure there's going to be lots uh, as utilization takes place. It's going to be an evolutionary process. There's obviously, you know, this is something that's brand new, uh, and there will be, uh, you know, kinks that have to be ironed out. Uh, But uh, we are working as hard as we can. Uh, to be ready for October
0: the the 17th. Well, As you know, there's been a gray area for quite some time, a lot of uh, dispensaries and sort of uh, shady marijuana operations and municipalities from Kamloops to Vancouver and and all points in between. Uh, As far as you're concerned, we hit October 17th, we're transitioning to a legal system. Uh, Is there going to be sort of a leeway time for people to become legitimate? Uh, Is there going to be a zero tolerance for people who aren't going through the regular channels? How's that going to work?
9: Um, I think what you're going to see as legal stores uh, and enforcement wraps up, uh, illegal stores will either close voluntarily or they're going to, uh, you know, close because of the uh, the new laws and regulations that are in place. Um, existing dispensaries have the ability to apply uh, to get a license within a local government municipality. Uh, it means that they're going to have to, uh, you know, get approval from the uh, from the local municipality and at the same time, a uh, get a you know a, a, a thorough criminal record check uh, from the province and then if they are successful at that uh, then they would be able to become a legal retailer uh, there is going to be no grandfathering of uh, of existing uh, dispensaries and so you um, know uh, uh, if they uh, fail to to get a license and fail to pass a criminal record check then they're not going to be able to be a legal operation and of course they will have to uh, they will have to uh, to close down.
0: Okay. Uh, as far as those uh, uh, closing them down, again, is there going to be a, like a two-month, three-month kind of leeway process, or is it going to be October 17th, you're in operation, that's it, you're done?
9: Well, it, it, it is going to be, uh, um, it's going. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, you know, there will be, enforcement will start uh, on October 17th, but this is going to take time. Um, it is going to take time in terms of getting the stores up and running, and it's going to take time to make sure that... Uh, that uh, they're up and running, and at the same time uh, dealing with uh, illegal stores uh, and stores that have been rejected by by local government. Okay. I mean... the writing is going to be clear on the wall. If you're not a legal operator, you're not going to be able to remain in business.
0: All right. Last question on the taxation side. Uh, Obviously, you're negotiating with UBCM on a cost share. Uh, We haven't reached an agreement that I'm aware of yet. So assuming that one isn't in place on the 17th, Mike, when that tax revenue starts rolling in, uh, what happens? I mean, if you you decide, say, in January, okay, we've reached a deal, uh, is it retroactive to the 17th? Do you put that money aside until it's decided how it's divvied up? How does that work?
9: Those are all issues that are in the Ministry of Finance, and the Ministry of Finance is working on those things.
0: That was Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. We'll be talking housing with the Minister responsible, Selina Robinson, when we return.
1: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Centre, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News
0: Director Shane Woodford. This week, the province made some history, becoming the first provincial government to announce it will build social housing for Indigenous peoples on reserve land, usually the domain of the federal government. It's a pleasure to be joined by Housing Minister Selena Robinson. Obviously a pretty huge announcement, a uh, 10-year, $550 million plan to uh, target social housing at First Nations uh, peoples across this province. Uh, first and foremost, uh, rewind a little bit. What was the need that you were looking to address here? Uh, give me sort of to emphasize the significance of this plan. What was the need?
11: that, I mean, housing is a significant component um, in addressing poverty. We need to make sure that those who are most in need Form of stable housing. And so when we took a look at, um, you know, truth and reconciliation, making sure that we are uh, 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 in full recognition that we are have an overrepresentation of people who are poor, who are Indigenous, uh, as well as among our homeless population, they're completely overrepresented, re- overrepresentation of Indigenous people in our homeless population, that we needed to take some bold, significant steps. And that means making sure that housing is available for those who need it most. And that's Indigenous people, both on and off reserve.
0: Uh, if I heard the Premier correctly, there was two or three sites where uh, you guys are, are forging ahead. I don't think Kamloops is one of them. Uh, for this community, anything in the offing uh, uh, particularly for that kind of housing yet, or no? Well,
11: those three those three sites um, were pilots that were done a number of years ago, um, and so uh, right now, so we, we know that there's um, opportunities, that there's, some, there's success when you uh, can build some housing on reserve, so we use that as the model that um, indicated to us that it's absolutely possible to do this so we've just opened up the rfp today it, it will go through to the fall and we're looking to partner with first nations with some um, indigenous housing providers um, and making sure that we are working in partnership to, de- to deliver on this uh, critical housing that will make a difference a significant difference in people's
0: lives is it just housing on this one selena or is it again is the province coming to the table with the wraparound services as far as support
11: need housing first and foremost and that's what we're looking to provide
0: okay so no wraparound services in this one necessarily
11: Services for those who are are homeless um, who need additional support given that they have um, taken to the streets and some have been there for a very, very long time. And so that's, uh, that's our other program that we've uh, been rolling out quite successfully with um, almost um, all of them spoken for, almost 2,000 of them are almost spoken for. This is a different uh, kind of housing fund. Uh, the RFP will identify the first 1,000 homes in this next year and we're really looking forward to making sure that we can have um, some of those up and running fairly soon.
0: Housing, of course, is a big challenge, a crisis rolling across this entire province. Former Premier Mike Harcourt has raised the supply question, saying you've got to build and build aggressively and speed up permitting processes in municipalities. Your take on that? Well, I mean, he's, he,
11: he, he does have a point. We need to build supply, but we need to build the right supply. I mean, that's what every, you know, people are missing, that we need to build the right supply. High-end condos and urban centers uh, is going to meet for certain uh, investors or certain uh, people in our communities. But it's not, uh, it's out of reach for most British Columbians. So how is that helpful to anybody? So we need to make sure that we're working together with local governments. Local governments are eager to work with us. First Nations are eager to work with our, with our government. We're um, encouraged that the federal government will continue to work with us to deliver the kinds of housing that people need wherever they are in the, in the province.
0: How do you speed up municipal permitting in order to get that supply out there?
11: Well, that's work that uh, that we're. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to uh, talking with local governments about. We have a UBCM coming up again in September, um, and I know that that will be part of the conversation that we have with, with local governments. Um, and we've already um, asked them as well to do a needs assessment so that local governments know what kind of housing they currently have in terms of their stock and what they're going to need so that they can start to make better decisions around land use. Uh, and we'll continue to work with local governments to address some of the, uh, you know, the delays that you, you might see in some of the development permitting processes. But not all local governments are delayed. Some, you know, many are where there's certainly volume, that's certainly an issue. But there are many communities where there are no delays. Um, and, and still, you know, there's a, there's a housing affordability crisis. So it's not, uh, it's oversimplified to say that there's only one thing that needs to happen. And that's why we did a 30-point plan. We're looking to address the supply issue, looking at fairness for renters and landlords and making sure that we are uh, we have a, a, a more fair market and that we you know, curb demand because that's been also creating challenges. So there's many uh, things that we need to uh, address, and that we're starting that with our 30-point plan.
0: Uh, you've dealt with the homeless. You've uh, now targeted First Nations. I'm curious, is there anything coming down the pipe for seniors? I'm hearing from some in the lower mainland who are on a fixed income and they're watching property taxes and other taxes go up and are having to make some or reevaluate some of their spending choices. Some are, are looking for cheaper climates. Any any help coming for seniors?
11: Well, we announced, um, I want to say it was in March the months are started blending, but I'm pretty sure it was March. One point, almost 1.9 billion dollars to build 14,000 units of affordable housing um, that will target seniors and, and families who are most in need. We also made an announcement just last month, another one uh, um, for women and children fleeing violence, to make sure that there's second-stage housing available for them and other supports, so that uh, again, you know, once they uh, when they hit a crisis, they're not stuck in a shelter; they can actually move on to um, onto a second-stage housing and affordable housing, and that will create space for women who are fleeing violence in the moment. So we're tackling uh, the, the kind of housing that people need on many different fronts.
0: Are you worried about seniors, though? I'm not talking about sort of a vulnerable population among seniors, but just regular seniors who are seeing sort of their their costs, uh, already taxation and things like that, outstrip um, their fixed income and are, and are being forced into a precarious position because of it. Does that concern you?
11: Well, all of it concerns me. I mean, seniors are uh, on fixed income, certainly are, are you know vulnerable, and that's why we increased the safer um, component uh, starting September 1st. That's going up so that they have a little bit more uh, sort of uh, ability to pay for rents that, that are continuing to climb. Um, we want to make sure that they have the ability to stay in the market, um, as well as building uh, subsidized housing so that they can um, um, access Uh, that as well. The other part of it, of course, is we're really focusing on making sure that we can get more rental housing built, and that's why we brought in uh, rental-only zoning, the first in North America, the first jurisdiction in all of North America to create this zone, with the idea that it will help generate some more rental stock, and when we know that uh, when when you have more stock, that that should ease some of the the cost for for renting um, in communities right across the province. We're tackling this, like I said, on many different fronts because it's going to take all of us working together to address housing affordability.
0: Uh, To change topics slightly, uh, the Municipal Auditor General, I believe, is under the auspices of your ministry. Um, It has been a troubled uh, office uh, since it began, and and I was just thinking the other day, I have not heard a single scrap of news out of that office or a study or a report of consequence that I can remember. Uh, Is that concerning, and does that office have a future, Selena?
11: Well, at this point, um, they have continued to operate under the mandate, um, which is to do uh, sort of, you know, some of these reviews um, around various topics. And um, I certainly get copies of them. Um, but there's also part of the legislation that after five years, there's to be a review of the office. And so that is, review is being undertaken right now
0: as we speak. Okay, interesting. But do you, do you have concerns about the office or, or no?
11: Um, at this point, I'm waiting to see what the review has to say.
0: Okay, so feasibly something could happen. Any idea when the review might conclude
11: um, I'd, I'd have to double check. I think we're expecting it done at the end of the summer, beginning of fall um, I'd have to double check on that. I wasn't expecting that that, that specific detail um, on the phone, but i'd have I can check with my office and get back to you. but when we're getting that review back,
0: okay, fair enough, but safe to say the office will get an assessment and determine its feasibility.
11: Yeah, after five years it's a requirement of the legislation, and so we're undertaking that requirement and I Expect to have a review uh, in the coming months.
0: Thanks, Selena. Appreciate it. All right. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye. That was Housing Minister Selena Robinson. Believe it or not, we're not done yet. We have an interesting perspective on the Indigenous housing announcement next.
1: Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m. and Radio NL.com. For Camloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
0: This week on the NL Morning News, we talked to Whispering Pines Chief Mike Laborde about building social housing on reserve land. It's an interesting talk. Let's take a listen. Shane Woodford here alongside Howie Reimer. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the Chief of the Whispering Pines First Nation, Mike Laborde. Mike, how are you, man?
10: Good, good. Just uh, getting
0: back from Ottawa. So. Oh, fantastic. Hey, uh, the reason we had you on is we had the this uh, social housing announcement earlier this week from uh, the Premier and Housing Minister Selina Robinson, uh, a bit of a history maker since the province is investing uh, on social housing projects both uh, off-reserve land but also on, which is traditionally federal sort of a responsibility. You uh, you tweeted at me something that which, uh, which uh, I, I knew but I'd sort of thought we'd made some movement on addressing, but apparently not, Uh, First Nations people still have no ownership of their property on on reserve land?
10: Yes, that's right. Uh, Section 2 of the Indian Act is very clear that uh, um, everything shall be held in trust for the Indians by the federal government. And so every house you see on every Indian reserve is owned by the federal government. They arrange elaborate leasing options and stuff like that for places like West Bank, for places like Sun Rivers, so that those individuals can have uh, some certainty for 99 years. But By and large, uh, every home you see at one point or another will be owned by the federal government, and therefore it it, um, decreases the likelihood of you getting a, a bank loan at uh, Royal Bank just like every other Canadian. The the odd thing is in, in Canada there's two people that can't own property and that's uh, off reserve it's mentally handicapped children and on reserve it's First Nations. And so if I want to own a house today I have to literally drive to town get, go to the bank and get a, a loan and buy a home in, in Westside or Aberdeen or something like that. But if I want to purchase a house on reserve I have a whole list of things that I have to do to buy a home that I won't own the day it's paid off.
0: Okay, I think we can all agree that's a little bit ridiculous. And the reason I thought we'd made some movement on it, I did some uh, quick research after uh, touching base with you on social media, but uh, there was some legislation, I believe it was tabled under former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, to address the issue, uh, and then it died uh, in an election cycle on the order paper. I don't know where that legislation is, if it's been retabled or not, but for your perspective, Mike, I mean, what do we do to solve this thing? It seems like this is a necessary change that should happen.
10: Yeah, it's a necessary change because it, you know it brings the uh, First Nations Indian reserves and those people owning homes into the you know the current century. Uh, what happened is in, in the change of um, uh, governments, we had to start all over. So we started meeting with uh, um, the Minister of Indian Affairs, uh, the Prime Minister's Office, uh, Minister of Finance, and updated them on how to do this change without creating um, a lot of uh, chaos. And so what we're doing, we're proposing incremental change. There was a, a dozen, and then it worked up to, like, 20. Then there's about 40 bands that are interested in owning their own reserves. So if you take Whispering Pines for an example, we have 22 homes on this reserve. And if we get our Indigenous Land Title Act through Parliament, um, we would own this reserve. The Whistler Pines Clinton Indian Band would own this reserve. And then we could give title to those people who bought those homes that would give the royal bank comfort in providing mortgages or those kinds of things to fix your home and then if somebody else wanted to purchase a home or build a home on reserve they go to the royal bank the deal is between the royal bank and that person and it leaves the federal government and the band government out of the whole deal and that's just what we want we want the same thing that other canadians enjoy today
0: would that, uh, I mean, let's let's hope we get there uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, would that open up, uh, and I have no idea if, the, if it would or not, just thought I'd throw it at you. Would that open up the ability for, um, you know, non-First non, non First Nations people to buy on reserve land? Or would there be something in effect there where reserve property is for First Nations?
10: Well, you could, um, um, yes, it would open up um, reserves for non natives to purchase homes on reserves, which is good because I have non natives on my reserve who have paid for homes. And it's not fair to them because at the end of the day, they don't ha- get to own the home that they paid for for their kids. And so their kids don't own it either. And so it's an unfair system all the way around. And so that's what we're trying to change. Uh, communities can make their own bylaws as to who, who owns what and when and where, but what we're after is just the, the same opportunity that other Canadians enjoy today.
0: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, of course, has campaigned uh, championing First Nations issues, especially abiding by uh, by UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Rights. Uh, do you get a sense that he could move on this, Mike, or is, is this a case, do you think, uh, and it's something probably First Nations people are pretty used to, politicians saying one thing and, and then not following through or doing another?
10: I think uh, we, were, we were putting along. We were moving the indigenous uh, land title initiative um, through, you know, we're educating the Department of Indian Affairs. We're in talks with Carolyn Bennett, Justin Trudeau's office, all that stuff. And then the bigger, sexier thing, the POT legislation comes along, and then Donald Trump and NAFTA and G7 and all that. And so we're, we're constantly having to elbow our ways to the table. Right, and so so that we can get some attention, so we can get our initiatives through Parliament and uh, turned into law, so that we'll never have to do this again. And so I I, I think that his his intentions and in hearts in the right place. He just you know not being a native, none of them are. And so how do you how do you address these problems? And so I work with the First Nations Tax Commission on how do we change the legislation of Canada so that. First Nations can enjoy Canada like the rest of uh, like the rest of Canadians.
0: You raised an interesting point there. Do we need more First Nations people uh, participating and taking a role in public life, uh, provincial, federal politics?
10: Well, I think it's just a uh, it, it's the, the the curve is now turning toward towards mainstream. So we're developing curriculum for schools. We're developing curriculum for universities. We have uh, the Tula Center of an. Indigenous studies, those kinds of things. And so, you know, when I was going through post-secondary, none of this existed. And so we're, trying to, we're turning the corner on this stuff. Uh, Canadians will be better uh, aware of our issues and how to address them.
0: All right, perfect. Uh, while you got you on the phone, uh, one touch base, another issue. Uh, you and I chatted not that long ago about the idea of uh, First Nation groups getting together, both in Alberta here in the interior and on Vancouver Island, about uh, buying into the Trans Mountain pipeline. Any any momentum or any anything new on that front?
10: Uh, yeah, I was in Ottawa yesterday meeting the Minister of Finance. So there is, uh, and again, it's 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 getting them up to speed because they, you know they. They stepped in because they didn't—they uh, didn't think it was uh, good for uh, Kinder Morgan to be handling the ball when they're being um, literally sued by a province. And so that's not a, a corporate fight. And so they stepped in, said, "Okay, let's handle this, and then we'll we'll um, put it back into the private sector when it's done." Well, our our take was we've always wanted equity in the pipe, uh, and that way you can incorporate your environmental protections from one end to the other. And so that's what the conversation was with uh, the Minister of Finance and and getting those guys up to speed, because it's a conversation that we had with Ian at Kinder Morgan, um, and it's a conversation we're having now with uh, Canada.
0: Interesting stuff. Mike, uh, thanks, man. Always appreciate talking to you. No problem, man. Okay, there we go. Mike Laborde, uh, Chief of the Whispering Pines First Nation, uh, talking about uh, First Nations groups still having the struggle, the long struggle of, of not being able to own property on reserve land, segued into a couple of interesting issues off of that as well. That's it with this week's huge Inside BC Poly with plenty of bonus podcast content. My thanks to all my guests this week, and we'll see you in one week's time right here on Radio NL. 12.30
1: Merritt, 13.40 Ashcroft, Cache Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.